Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holset. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to deal with triple negative breast cancer, a view from a thousand feet. We've talked briefly about uh, triple negative disease before, and just to go back over it, this is uh, probably the most aggressive subtype of breast cancer. It has not had the advantages of HER2 positive disease of developing a targeted agent in the last few years, and most commonly this cancer will arise in younger women and can often have a quite an aggressive presentation, possibly already metastatic at the time of diagnosis or presenting with an inflammatory breast cancer picture. A lot of these patients also get picked up in between their screening mammograms. So it's not uncommon for a woman to have a normal screening mammogram and then a few months later to have a palpable lump. They make up 15% of all breast cancers and associate with the BRCA1 subtype. And this will be relevant to some treatment options available. And we're going to defer all discussion around BRCA1-based treatment and that syndrome in general to our final talk in the breast cancer next discussion. Yeah, so because of that, every patient with triple negative breast cancer should be referred to genetic counseling to get tested. About 20% of patients have BRCA mutations compared with 6% of all patients with breast cancer testing positive for either BRCA1 or BRCA2. These cancers have a very high rate of genetic mutations when we look at the um, genomes of these cells. Uh, This is likely a downstream result of error repair issues, primarily um, via the p53 mutation. Due to the high rate of mutations, there's been a lot of interest looking at immune checkpoint inhibitors, and these have had some some modest benefit in this arena, both in the localized and metastatic thing. The bulk of our talk today will be around these, these novel regimens. Triple negative breast cancer can also be, when we talk about the different gene expression signatures, it's generally referred to as the basal subtype. Strictly uh, speaking, these are defined as tumors with an estrogen receptor positivity of less than 1% and HER2 of zero or low status. HER2 low meaning, for those of you who haven't heard our TDXD talk about trastuzumab, can HER2 low is now a new category where you are... Um, IHC 1 plus or 2 plus and fish negative. All right. So we're going to start off by talking about this in the localized setting. So curative intent, knowing that these tumors have poor prognosis. Um, actually, just going back one step, these are chemotherapy sensitive diseases. So given that they have a poor prognosis and are actually quite chemosensitive, the vast majority of um, early stage Triple negative breast cancer will benefit from a multi-agent adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy regimen. Yeah, so unlike HER2 positive disease where we consider chemotherapy for tumors greater than 2 centimeters, for triple negative, most people would give chemotherapy for a tumor greater than 0.5 centimeters. Less than 0.5 centimeters, it's a pretty good prognosis with just surgery alone, but greater than that is when you would consider the addition of chemotherapy, either in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting. And as we've previously reviewed, both the HER2-positive disease and the triple-negative disease has really been where this pathologic complete response has been shown to be a prognostic marker. And as with HER2, and we'll get to this in a moment, there is some role of adapting therapy in the adjuvant space for residual disease. Currently, the the standard approach to anyone with a triple-negative positive breast cancer that's larger than half a centimeter would be to start off with neoadjuvant chemotherapy if there's no contraindications to giving this. Exact approach, of course, will vary from institution to institution. Depending on the patient, there may be a consideration of giving surgery up front as well. So given that there are no targeted agents for triple negative breast cancer, the backbone of all of your treatment is really chemotherapy. Until quite recently, that would be using the standard chemotherapy regimens we were using otherwise, such as a dose-dense or um, 
third generation chemotherapy for most of these patients. So as we've previously discussed, uh, third generation regimens would be those continue, containing an anthracycline and a taxane, often in an escalated regimen. So either dose dense, given every two weeks of um, doxorubicin cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel, or one of the um, fluorouracil containing regimens such as 5-fluorouracil, epirubicin cisplatin followed by docetaxel, or 5-fluorouracil, doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel. In select patients, you may also prefer to use a less intensive regimen, especially for smaller tumors and older patients with other comorbidities, um, such as uh, cyclophosphamide and docetaxel, the, the so-called TC regimen, which is given for every um, three weeks or four cycles. There has been some interest in looking at carboplatin in triple negative breast cancer. There's some evidence that carboplatin can, or that these cancers are sensitive to carboplatin. So many of the regimens have now added carboplatin to the regimen. And in general, uh, as we've discussed with our pancreatic cancers previously, BRCA-positive tumors are often very platinum-sensitive. So there is a lot of interest to use these, and certainly in the mass sac setting, these tumors do benefit from carboplatin quite frequently, especially the BRCA-positive disease. And the more recent clinical trials have been evaluating some carboplatin-competing regimens, although... To my knowledge, there's no direct comparison of a carboplatin versus non-carboplatin regimen, um, and certainly not a carboplatin regimen versus the gold standard of dose dense. So similar to what we've seen in the HER2-positive setting, there were attempts to modify the chemotherapy if there was residual disease found on the pathology at the time of surgery. One of the landmark studies looking at this is called the CREATE-X trial, and this included 900, around 900 patients, all with HER2-negative disease. About one-third of the patients had triple-negative breast cancer, and two-thirds had hormone-positive breast cancer. And this study looked at patients who received neoadjuvant treatment with either anthracycline or taxane or both, and for patients that did not achieve a pathologic complete response, they were randomized to either placebo or eight cycles of capecitabine. This trial was run entirely in Eastern Asia. The dose of capecitabine was 1250 milligrams per meter squared, which would be larger than what's typically used in the North American population, um, where we're usually not going to use anything higher than 1000 milligrams per meter squared due to increased risk of toxicity of capecitabine in the North American population due to many theorized reasons, some being related to the uh, variations in nutritional micronutrients leading to differences in metabolism of this drug. So the study showed a five-year disease-free survival of 74% with the capecitabine versus 68% with the placebo, and a five-year overall survival of 89% versus 84%. So the addition of the capecitabine did increase the five-year overall survival and disease-free survival. This was in the overall population, but uh, when they did the subset analysis, it appeared that pretty much all of the benefit was driven by the patients with triple negative breast cancer, which is why we do not use this for patients with hormone positive disease. So for patients with triple negative breast cancer, the five-year disease-free survival was 70% versus 56%, and the five-year overall survival was 79% versus 70%. Toxicities, which we've discussed before with capecitabine back in our GI series, were mainly um, hand-foot syndrome, so rash on the palms and the soles, neutropenia, and diarrhea. Unlike transtuzumab and tanzine, which is used in, for residual HER2-positive disease, capecitabine is a radiosensitizer, so you cannot give this at the time of radiation. So the trial allowed for patients to receive radiation prior to initiation of capecitabine. So 
So when we move into mass saxing, we'll be talking about um, the, the evidence that's kind of led to checkpoint inhibitors, immune checkpoint inhibitors moving their way into the space. In the localized setting, um, there is one recent trial that has looked at using a pembrolizumab-based regimen in the neoadjuvant setting. And based upon the outcomes of the setting, this has become FDA-approved and would be considered the, the standard of care, in, at least in the United States. The study looks at 1,000 patients with either stage 2 or stage 3 disease and was kind of a two-part regimen, the first part being weekly paclitaxel with pembrolizumab every three weeks, and the carboplatin could either be given weekly with an AOC of 1.5 or every three weeks with an AOC of 6. That's an area under the curve, which is a way of that carboplatin is dosed. This is then followed by doxorubicin along with cyclophosphamide every three weeks and continuing the pembrolizumab every three weeks. This did not use a dose, uh, dose dense, which is typically a standard of care for um, triple negative breast cancer. And this was compared to patients um, receiving a placebo-containing arm with the same chemotherapy regimens. And after patients went for surgery, the pembrolizumab was continued for another eight cycles, sorry, another nine cycles after the surgery. And this was regardless of if the patient achieved a pathologic complete response or not. Basically, one year of pembrolizumab in addition to a carboplatin, paclitaxel, doxorubicin, and cyclophosphamide-based neoadjuvant backbone. These patients were randomized two to one, and they're stratified by node positivity, tumor size, whether as T1 to 2 or T3 to 4, and whether or not they received weekly or Q3 weekly carboplatin. There were two primary endpoints for this study, the first one being pathologic complete response, and the second one being three-year event-free survival. Pathologic complete response was improved in patients that received dipembrolizumab, 65% versus 51%, and the three-year event-free survival was also improved, 85% versus 77%. And interestingly, this was improved regardless of the patient's pdl one status. So typically when we use immunotherapy, we check the PDL1 status before, but in the new adjuvant setting at least, it seems as if the PDL1 status does not necessarily have any implications for how well the pembrolizumab will work. The PDL1 status in breast cancer will be similar to our gastric and esophageal disease, which is the combined positive score. So looking at the both the tumor itself as well as the surrounding tumor invading lymphocytes, which as we'll get into in lung cancer, is different than the TPS score used in lung cancer. Understandably, the addition of more drug did lead to increased toxicity. There was an increased rate of um, discontinuation of the regimen uh, on the pembrolizumab arm, with about 30% stopping the um, needing to discontinue the regimen in either the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, versus 14% in the non-pembrolizumab group. The study did not specify what point the patients ended up discontinuing. There was a slightly increased risk of death of 0.5% versus 0.3%, likely not of Significant, significant difference, although most deaths in the neoadjuvant setting were due to adverse um, events. There was also an increased risk of hypothyroidism, which was 15% versus 6%, although not necessarily a life-threatening toxicity. This is a toxicity with immune therapy that can lead to lifelong levothyroxine use, so certainly should be part of your consent process and something you should be mindful of. So due to these results, this regimen has really now become the standard of care for most patients with newly diagnosed triple negative breast cancer that require neoadjuvant treatment. So not to belabor the points I made during the, our prior discussion, the HER2 positive space, but I always remain curious, you know, would, how would this regimen fare versus a dose-dense ACT regimen? Or could you use a dose-dense regimen in addition to pembrolizumab? You know, the hazard ratio here was 0.63 in event-free survival at three years, 
and overall survival looking at dose dense versus traditional ACT for all comers, not, not just specific to triple negative disease, was 0.7. See radiation prior to initiation of capeside beam. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the Kino 522 does bring up some questions. You know, I think a lot of people are wondering if patients don't achieve a pathologic complete response with this intensive chemo immunotherapy regimen, would you still continue with the adjuvant pembrolizumab or would you switch to capecitabine as was done in the CREATEX trial? You know, nobody knows the answer to this and I don't know if we ever will if they will design a trial looking at this. Yeah, I mean, can you even just give capecitabine and pembrolizumab together? A lot of this is hypothetical. Hopefully we get those trials to come out. Yeah, and then as we'll discuss with, with um, BRCA positive, is there a role for Olaparib? You know, we got some data, but of course we have more questions. One more thing to add is that unlike hormone positive disease where the risk of recurrence rises slowly over time and recurrences can happen 20 years later, for triple negative disease, usually we have early recurrences. So recurrences usually occur within the first three years of diagnosis or the first three years of treatment. Not to say that late recurrences can never happen. Moving into the metastatic setting, this is a very challenging disease to treat. Although chemosensitive, often responses are time limited. Uh, I, in my mind, think of triple negative breast cancer, not unlike a, a small cell lung cancer, where we often see that these will respond, will have improvement in symptoms, but given enough time, very often, more often than not, will have uh, become uh, chemo resistant. It's very important to repeat your biopsy at the time of metastatic disease, especially if you have recurrence one or two years down the road to ensure that this disease still is triple negative as these tumors can change their expression over time. Triple negative tends to have more visceral metastasis, so things like liver, lung, uh, brain meds are more common rather than a hormone positive disease where we tend to see more bone metastasis. And for all new, as we said, um, either localized or metastatic triple negative disease, you do want to send, um, make sure you're sending BRCA testing. Until recently, where immune checkpoint inhibitors have made their way into the early um, approach to this disease, the standard of care would be sequential chemotherapy, often given a single agent. Carboplatin is often uh, a consideration here. Um, these tumors are more platinum sensitive, as we mentioned, versus our hormone positive HER2 negative disease. One time where you might consider using combination is if someone is very symptomatic from a visceral, let's say lymphangitic spread or painful liver meds, can consider combination chemo in that setting if you're trying to get a quick response. But yeah, otherwise you pretty much do single agent chemotherapy sequentially. Yeah, visceral crisis, although not a common presentation, it's certainly quite a profound thing when you see it. see patients with a very aggressive high disease burden. Because of all the symptoms result, uh, involved with this, you really want to try to get your response rate both early as possible and the highest response rate as possible. Whereas if you have only one or two metastatic lesions that are asymptomatic, if they don't respond to your single agent chemotherapy, you have time to switch. But if, they, if you have a high disease burden, it doesn't respond to your single agent chemotherapy. Often the patients will no longer be candidates for a second or third line agent. So as with many other cancers, immunotherapy has made its way into the breast cancer space. And currently, the standard of care is to add pembrolizumab to standard chemotherapy for patients with a CPS, so the combined prognostic score, greater than 10. This was looked at in the Keynote 355 study, which was published in 2020, looking at around 900 patients with metastatic or inoperable locally recurrent triple negative breast cancer that was previously untreated. And it looked at pembrolizumab with physician's choice chemotherapy, either nabpaclitaxel, 
paclitaxel or carboplatin uh, carbo gemcitabine. The primary endpoint was um, PFS and OS in the CPS greater than 10 group. And at medium follow-up of 25 months in this group of patients with CPS greater than 10, the progression-free survival is 9.7 months versus 5.6 months in the placebo arm. The overall survival is also increased to 23 months versus 16 months. They also looked at patients with CPS greater than 1, and in these patients, there was no statistically significant PFS or OS benefit. This trial also included patients who were CPS negative, so a, a pdl one CPS score less than 1%, and those patients did not seem to derive benefit either. And in this study, we've seen this in other studies also, but around 40% of the patients had CPS greater than 10%. To put these findings in context, it's worth noting that there's been other attempts at looking at immune therapy um, for the management of MESTEC, triple negative breast cancer, that have not been so successful. And the, there's an interesting story that goes along with uh, atezolizumab, which was the first medication to make its way into the space. Atezolizumab was trialed in two different trials with different outcomes. Uh, the first trial was the Impassion 130 trial. So this was looking at, once again, triple negative breast cancer in the first-line setting. MESTEC are uh, locally recurrent and operable. Um, they randomized patients one-to-one to get a tezolizumab and a Braxane versus a Braxane alone. They said all comers, patients were stratified based on presence or absence of liver metastases and a pdl one status of less than 1% or greater than 1%. The, it's worth mentioning that the pdl one measurement in this study used a different assay than what pembrolizumab has used in the past. The primary outcome for this study was a PFS and OS split. So the pembrolizumab trial was specifically the primary outcome was looking at patients with the CPS score greater than 10. And this was looking at patients that were all comers and then had a hierarchical testing for if the primary outcome was positive to look at things like overall survival in the high PDL1 group. In the overall population, the study was actually negative. The medium overall survival was 21 versus 18.7 months, and the PFS was 7.2 versus 5.5 months. The authors did go ahead and do an exploratory analysis looking at the high pdl one population. And patients with pdl one scores greater than 1% on their assay, they did find a larger overall survival of 25.4 versus 18 months. They're unable to calculate a p-score on this because this was an exploratory endpoint. Given the large overall survival benefit that was seen here. They did get conditional approval from the US FDA, but we're told to run a follow-up study to confirm this with a study designed to look more specifically at these high pdl one patients. So this brings us to the Impassion 131 study, which changed the the taxane to um, paclitaxel, mainly due to, you know, now paclitaxel is much more expensive, not available everywhere. So they decided to pair atezolizumab with paclitaxel. Now in this study, um, there was no progression-free survival or overall survival benefit when the atezolizumab was added to paclitaxel. So this study was powered with the primary endpoint to look for PFS, specifically in the PDL1 greater than 1% population. And the authors um, specified that if this was positive, then they would subsequently look at all patients. So the previous trial, they looked at all patients, and if positive, would look at the high PL1 here. But here they, they flipped that to focus on the PL1 patients first. This was a negative trial. Um, patients had a six-month PFS versus 5.7-month PFS in the PDL1 greater than 1% group. Overall survival is actually numerically shorter in the atezolizumab arm of 22 versus 28 months. So ultimately, this, and in the context of the very positive 
pembrolizumab trial, the um, approval for atezolizumab was withdrawn by the company. Certainly an interesting trial. Many, many people from a physiologic standpoint think that all immune therapies are the same, so it's unclear why, or it's not entirely clear why one immune therapy is able to find a statistically significant greater overall survival and the other isn't. There's a lot of, been a lot of theories that maybe this is differences in sensitivity or specificity of the PO1 assay. Some, are th- some have hypothesized that using corticosteroids or paclitaxel may um, have blunted the immune therapy effect because we know that in corticosteroids in general can lower immune therapy e- efficacy. I'm not sure I completely agree with that because they did include paclitaxel in the Keynote 522 trial, and that did not seem to be impacted. Maybe the findings in the pembrolizumab arm were just by chance, certainly something that we always have to think about with the confirmatory trial. I think this is a good reminder that we always need to do the confirmatory studies and that we can't, you know, get excited about subgroup analyses and not run the larger studies later on. So talking about later line treatment for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So as we said, you know, your first line will be either single agent chemotherapy or chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, depending on the CPS score. After that, we really just use single agent chemos. There are kind of two targeted agents that are getting some attention. The first one being sasituzumab govotecan, which is an antibody drug conjugate targeting the trope 2. And that's paired to SN38, which is the um, active agent in irinotecan. This was looked at in the Tropics 2 study. So the study looked at about 450 patients who had metastatic triple negative breast cancer that progressed on two prior lines of chemotherapy. And it was looking at sasituzumab govotecan versus physician's choice chemotherapy. Um, and the choices were aribulin, venerelbine, capecitabine, or gemcitabine. And in this study, the overall survival was improved with the sasituzumab govotecan, 12.1 months versus 6.7 months. And the progression-free survival was also improved improved 5.6 months versus 1.7 months. The main toxicities that we see with sasituzumab govotecan are neutropenia, diarrhea, and leukopenia. The other uh, targeted therapy that's been studied in the space is using trastuzumab directicam in those triple negative breast cancer patients who have a HER2 low setting, so FISH positive or 1 plus by HC. In this was the uh, this was a exploratory subgroup in the Destiny Breast 04 trial. Keeping in mind, this was only amounted to about 60 patients in total, and there did seem to be a increased um, PFS outcome. However, the the published data so far has not shown any statistical analysis of this. Yes, I think I'd reached tocilizumab govotecan probably before the TDXD, just given the amount of patients. I think one lingering question and one I'm not sure what the answer would be is what to do if you progress on sacrituzumab govotecan, would you then reach for the trastuzumab drexican? Although the trastuzumab target's different, the chemotherapy that you're using in that setting would still be of the same class. So I'm not sure if there'd be some resistant to the chemotherapy effect. And there have yet to be any studies showing giving one of these um, antibody drug conjugates after the other. Always worth reminding, and you've probably heard this time and time again, but when you get to these later stages of these aggressive diseases, be aware of your local clinical trial landscape, whether there's any offered at your center or at nearby centers. So hopefully that wasn't too much information, but just to kind of give some bottom line high points that we think are important. So triple negative breast cancer tends to be one of the more most aggressive types of breast cancer, usually high grade, high KI-67, can be associated with 
BRCA positivity. In the localized setting, in patients with greater than 0.5 centimeters are likely to to gain survival benefit from a chemotherapy regimen. And given the data of CREATE-X, we're often going to aim for the neoadjuvant space. If you have access and to pembrolizumab, you're going to be giving this as a as a pembrolizumab with weekly pacotaxel and carboplatin, followed by pembrolizumab, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, surgery, and then nine additional cycles of pembrolizumab. If you don't have access to pembrolizumab or if there's going to be significant financial toxicity, you're still likely to be well off using a dose-dense or other third-generation regimen. For patients that don't receive the Keno 522 regimen, so the pembrolizumab-containing regimen, based on the CREATE-X trial, if there is still residual disease at the time of surgery, it's recommended to complete um, adjuvant capecitabine. In patients who do receive pembrolizumab, I think it's an area of expert consensus. We don't have data for whether or not to include capecitabine in the adjuvant setting. Worth also mentioning that we've intentionally ignored BRCA1 positivity, and we will get, get into the subtleties of that during our next discussion. In the metastatic space, our goal is to relieve disease burden, maximize both quality and longevity of life using sequential regimens. And patients who have a CPS pdl one score greater than 10, our first line is going to be a combination of pembrolizumab as well as either paclitaxel, carboplatin and gemcitabine, or albumin-bound paclitaxel, also known as NAB paclitaxel or braxine. After progression on this, or if the patient is has a CPS score of less than 10%, we would then move towards sequential chemotherapy with consideration of either secotuzumab govotecam or trastuzumab directicam as a potential option in the setting. Hopefully this is helpful. I know I just took the in-training the ASCO in training exam today, and there was definitely some questions on breast cancer. So hopefully um, this can help both with clinics and for studying for the boards for all the my fellow third-year fellows. We realize we've been a little tardy with uh, aiming for an every two-week schedule. We'll try to keep on that as best of our abilities. And uh, once again, we always welcome any feedback, and we hope this continues to be a useful discussion for all you've been following along so far. And thank you to those of you who followed us on Twitter. I think we're up to a whopping 10 followers, maybe. So if you haven't, um, feel free to check us out. We're at Talking Tumors. Bye for now. Have a good night. For more information, follow us on Twitter at Talking Tumors, or feel free to email us at talkingabouttumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he's the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.